Hey everybody, it's January 6, 2018, and this is your episode 128 of At Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me today are Laurel Black. Hi. And Ben Charles. Hi everybody. Megan is out. She's in Costa Rica. She's got an obligation today. So hey Megan, how's it going? We miss you. And listen, our guest today is the Associate Professor of Percussion at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is renowned for her interpretations of modern percussion repertoire, including the works of Stuart Saunders Smith, Yana Sinakis, Andy Akiho, and Steve Reich. She has collaborated with Yo-Yo Ma, Emmanuel Axe, and is a former student of the legendary pedagogue Robert Van Syce. So you guys, please welcome Ayano Kataoka. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very um, honored to be here. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much. So where are you talking to us from today? Um, I'm in Amherst, uh, where uh, there's a lot of snow uh, from the uh, snowstorm a few days ago. Yeah, how has that been? We haven't seen any of that here. Of course, we're, we're much further southwest from you, but... Yeah, how has how has it been? We've just seen these crazy news reports and Facebook videos. Mm-hmm. Has everything been okay for you? Right. Uh, well, we survived. <laughs> so, but um, I had to do uh, shoveling snow for two hours <laughs> to yeah get the uh, pathway. <laughs> so yeah, that was a quite a work. Um, pathway then... to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> 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 what do you what do you got there, Ben? Yeah, so well, I just wanted to say I met Iono for the first time, I think around 2006 or seven, when I was a student at UNT, and then we met again and actually spoke in 2011 when I was a student at Illinois, and both times were in the uh, context of the Sylvia Smith duo. Uh, Iono and Sylvia Smith played together, uh, mostly for obvious reasons, the music of Stuart Saunders Smith. So, Iono, I was wondering if you could tell us about your relationship with the Smiths and how that all began for you and how that's been going the past few years. Okay. Um, yeah, Stuart and Sylvia um, has been, have been very, very supportive to my um, musical activities. And uh, uh, when I met uh, them for the first time, actually, when I was a student at Peabody, um, and then they used to live in Baltimore as well because um, Stuart used to teach at UNBC, uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. So um, I was uh, actually, um, Robert Van Sides, my teacher, uh, suggested me to play uh, one of his um, theatrical piece uh, called Endpoints North. And um, I, yeah, I, um, I didn't know him until then, uh, who he was. And also, um, yeah, I never done any of the theatrical music at that point, but I wanted to try something. So I asked uh, Robert Van uh, Syce um, to, yeah, if there is anything that could uh, fit me well. So that was the uh, his suggestion. Um, actually, I visited uh, their house. And he, um, yeah, um, Bob actually mentioned that, um, yeah, they live in Baltimore, and then, yeah, it should be like 20 minutes away from um, school. So um, I had my friends to uh, drive me, and then I uh, went to uh, visit uh, their house for the first time 
and yeah, to get the score basically, uh, because um, I didn't have score. Um, so yeah, their house. Um, I, I still. Oh, I think it was uh, actually winter, so it was cold. And then, um, yeah, so I got a music from the composer. I was also really, you know, kind of nervous <laughs> um, to get that. And I asked um, him about, yeah, what is the music, what's the music is about. And, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he explained to me about, uh, it's, uh, it's about a Native American woman. Or I mean, can be man or woman, whoever, uh, whoever do the piece. Um, but um, anyway, it's in search for soul. And um, and points north is uh, if you um, take is that 90, uh, 95 uh, the uh, highway that if you go to Maine. Um, the, the sign, there is a sign uh, when you enter uh, to Maine, uh, and then it, uh, it says Endpoints North. So he's from, uh, from Maine, so he really has that connection to Maine or to the North, and then sort of that's connected to... Uh, also, there were, I think, the uh, Native American um, people are... Um, this continuing is that the right word? Um, yeah, so it's yeah decreasing. So he kind of also wanted to sort of preserve or in in a way to have that memory of that um, Native Americans um, tradition. Because I also uh, in the piece you have to speak the uh, language of that. Um, Native, Native Americans. So, um, yeah, that's sort of the idea about the piece. I mean, he, uh, I don't remember how much detail he talked to me um, about the piece at that point, but the, what I remember the most is actually, so you have to um, make the stage gorgeous in the period. <laughs> that's what he said, and then that really gives me, like, wow, I have to make the stage gorgeous, whatever it means. So I was more nervous about how I can make it um, stage like that. So, um, yeah, and then I got a few coachings uh, from them. Um, the, the, I prepared the piece for my degree recital, and also I was preparing for actually a competition. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, after they saw... Uh, my performance, they liked it. And then, um, yeah, they asked me to um, do the duo, uh, to do the tour, and then, yeah, featuring uh, Stuart Music. So um, that was the, yeah, sort of how <laughs> our relation has uh, built up. And, uh, yeah, we did a lot of tour for a few years, and then that's when I met Ben, um, and then let's see. Yeah, lately, um, since uh, Stuart retired and they moved to Vermont, 
Um, it's uh, about two and a half hours away from here. And I, yeah, sometimes still visit and uh, they really enjoy the beauty of the, you know, nature there. It's really, um, yeah, big, big house with the huge field. And then, um, yeah, especially Subia loves uh, like a farming and gardening, <laughs> um, yeah, like apple trees and um, yeah, it, it's really, really um, beautiful, beautiful place that they really enjoy living there. And I pic- I can picture that. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, true. Like, <laughs> I always picture, for some reason, both Stuart Saunders Smith and, of course, I've heard the stories of John Luther Adams and the cabin you know, he composes in, in Alaska, at far north, snow, remote. For some reason, I always imagine them both composing in that same cabin. Uh-huh, yeah. I've never seen <laughs> either but location, but in, in my same... headspace, they're both in the same yeah. place. They're both in Alaska. Yeah. yeah. I imagine it's... the Smith's house, for some reason, as being... Like, yeah, quite remote, but also feel filled with the most eccentric artistic objects, um, like flower presses and I don't know, like, like a secret sculpture obsession or something. I don't know. I might just be projecting. <laughs> it's very interesting, I think, to like composers to kind of get inside their head like this, like we're doing, because... Stuart Saunders Smith, yeah, I, I think a whole lot like John Cage, he's a composer that whether you love or hate the sound of his music, there's something about him that's just interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember one of my one of my the weirdest PAS articles I've ever read that it just kind of drove me crazy thinking about it. As this is an, an old one, maybe from the nineties or something. I found it in an old back issue that was laying around at University of Illinois. But he wrote an article about symbols in music. And his whole thing, if you're unfamiliar, is a, a lot of what he writes on the page is sort of borderline inconceivable by human beings. And he's asking the performer to sort of interpret to the best of their ability these symbols that he's put on the page. And in this article, he has this quote, and it just drove me crazy when I was a grad student that read it. And he says, like, what does a symbol infer? A symbol can only infer symbolness. We assign a meaning to it. And it just drove me crazy, this, like, philosophical debate of what he meant by this. <laughs> and I know, like, the uh, the links pieces for vibraphone are these pieces that have, you know, just these insane polyrhythms of 17 over 13 or something like that. And it's like, how do you conceive that? And what, what exactly does that mean? And I know, I know you've played... I think quite a few of the Lynx vibraphone pieces. Could you tell us about how you dealt with these sort of challenges in his music? Yeah, um, he tried to avoid using uh, duple in general. So, you know, um, quintuplet, sevens, yeah, nines, and so that each actually note is a little bit, you know, not quite in, how do I say, um, you know, we are so comfortable with the beat and yeah, the grid. Yeah. Like that. But, but then, you know, that's really gets you off from that. And then that becomes each note to be more free. But, but I mean, he's really, uh, being strict for you to do exactly the notation 
you know, of Queen tablet or Seven's tablet or whatever. But um, eventually you would find at one point, it's really um, yeah, challenging process and they're always sort of, for me, for the first, I don't know, it's depending on the piece and then some pieces just like, yeah, um, gives me, you know, crazy, just like, I don't know how I can, you know, learn this piece. <laughs> Because it's a lot of struggle um, for a while. And then at one point, you kind of have this moment of click that, uh, ah, I think I got it. Like what the sound world or the atmosphere or the feeling of the, you know, um, music uh, there's one point that yeah, I since I have this experience, I believe you will get to this point. So until then, you kind of have to struggle and then be impatient to learn the music. Um, but um, again, like speak, uh, going back to Endpoints North, it has such a uh, beautiful um, message, and then also. Uh, some kind of very personal uh, that can really um, take your like as your own the interpretation is and then it's really becomes special so I find uh, struck music to be that way uh, and also he really use interesting or I mean he's a also he says himself he's a poet and uh, using lots of text and or, um, yeah, singing. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's really um, mm, very interesting um, music words that he creates that I really enjoy. I really enjoyed watching um, Lee perform the authors at PASIC this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I um I went to their booth at the the Smiths booth mm-hmm. in the exhibition hall, and both he and Sylvia were there. And I thought, oh great, I'll just say how much I enjoyed it. And I just mm-hmm. went up to him, and I was like, my name's Laurel Black. You don't know me, but I just wanted to let you know that I really enjoyed that piece of music, and you know I look forward to learning it. And he was like, oh okay, and then just like walked away behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even say like oh thank you so much it was like okay and then it went away and i was like well well crap so, so you know how laurel you know how pasic was kind of set up in a like a uh what i guess like a series of s's right this this time yeah around? yeah and like the zigzag through i was going mm-hmm. down one of the zigzags and just a long stretch and Stuart Saunders Smith was standing at the end and I was walking down, you know, I don't know, 50 feet or something. And he was just staring at me with this just (laughs) intense look. And yeah, I could just, I don't know. It's like, he's, he's, he's totally sees my soul or something. It was, uh, kind of just like, seeing through you and also maybe not enjoying where he was in that moment or something. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it would be hard to work on the floor. I know we've talked about that before. We talked about the artifact guys. It's not easy to work on the show floor, certainly. But yeah, what a, what, I mean, what a wonderful guy. I mean, what a wonderful, uh, what wonderful works and yeah, I mean, just, just absolutely gorgeous things. I don't know. I was wondering you, 
you know, as a as a teacher, how do you like to introduce your students to music that is this difficult conceptually and physically? Um, about Stuart music? Well, maybe maybe Stuart, maybe Zanakis, maybe Applebaum. Mm. I feel like there's kind of this, you know, there's this ongoing <laughs> discussion that mm -hmm. I know I have with composer friends, and they often say, "Well, we got to get we, we got to get students playing this modern music more," but I often feel like they're just not they're not quite ready for it, and you know, there's a lot of, you know, we need to find those pieces that will kind of inch up to those. But I'm, yeah, I'm wondering how you how you might like to do that. Yeah, it's a, a good question, and then also it's a difficult. Um, I also um, think about it often, like whether okay, is this student ready to do this, or maybe not. And then yeah, I think also they need sort of step to get to the point that that can be ready uh, physically and mentally. Uh, and also maturity would be also one thing. Um, but at the same time, when I give them certain, you know, kind of challenge, they respond um, through working really hard. And then when they achieved that point, and then actually much more, you know, growth that I see. So it's... It's also in a way good to give something that a little bit could might be a little bit too high level for them, but also really wanna I want them to experience and then um, yeah it's the result may not come uh, the way that should be like a perfect or you know yeah. I mean, I, I never felt my performance was perfect. <laughs> so um, I think it's uh, not about just being, of course, you know, we want to get uh, as high as possible with the, you know, presentation and not accuracy or stuff like that. But I think it's process is also important that um, I care about that. So I think it's a combination of both sides. Make sure that, yeah, they learn a fundamental thing, uh, but at the same time, I want them to experience the challenge uh, and the literature of the, you know, percussion that can be, you know, too difficult for them to understand. <laughs> um, but I believe that they will, and then I think actually when that could be only chance for them to be able to experience the, yeah. when you know you're started, uh, you know, yeah, it's so hard to uh, access to equipment and facilities to do Xenakis you know, piece. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I make sure that they get to do at least some kind of craziness. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh -huh. Laurel and I teach together, and we talk about kind of a, a three steps up, two steps back, three steps up, as far as difficulty is concerned, and kind of pushing that ceiling. So yeah, I absolutely agree. It's great to give them, give them those challenges that you feel are just out of reach, or maybe far out of reach even. And yeah, they yeah they always respond really really well, and it seems like they're often flattered that you 
picked that for them, you know. Yeah, so suddenly they have this like courage and, and ability. So that's great to hear. I think I think that one thing that comes into play with this too is, I, like I remember the first time that I heard Ayano perform when I was an undergraduate student, I didn't really get it because they just sort of came in, performed, and then left. But then when they came to Illinois, when I was doing my master's degree, I, I actually got to perform with a friend, with Sylvia. And like, I remember we had lunch together and like actually getting to have a sort of a dialogue about these pieces and sort of get in the composer's head more made like, it just completely changed it. It made it so much more, uh, I guess, palatable to me. And uh, like, it was just, Smith, right? yeah, yeah. Well, and Iona was there as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that just, I, I think that not just throwing something on a student and saying you need to play and points North because it's a good piece but actually sort of making the student go out and learn about the piece before they actually start, you know, shedding on the piece, I think can make a huge difference because it's the, I think maybe Laurel said this before, the, the why of doing something versus the actual doing it, I guess. Does, am I making sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds like Laurel. I, th I think it's all about chops though, Ben. <laughs> it's just the choppier the better fast dance challenge <laughs> right i mean that that's kind of all anyone's doing these days <laughs> yeah well you know speaking of nonsense let's do my what's the sound this week let's give iano just a little break from talking and i'll show you guys this what's the sound i have prepared here Okay, so I don't know if you guys noticed already that I put this in the notes or not. You gave a little hint. You, you did. I mean, to me, it sounds like whale sounds. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very nautical. It's, yeah. it's funny hearing this now after talking about Stuart Saunders Smith, Zanakis. It's just like, oh, yeah, well, it's obviously the conch, conch shell manipulation or, or something. So... Listen, this kind of falls into the same category as something I reported on back on episode 40, which was the episode with Michael Burrett. He was visiting University of Missouri, hanging out there with Megan, and that was a segment on audio recovery. Do you guys remember that episode and that topic? Okay. It was about how people are using computers and imaging technology to recover damaged recordings that are unplayable so you have an old wax cylinder recording that is so degraded and ruined that if you were to play it you would ruin it or you have an old tinfoil recording same thing if you were to try to actually play the thing it would just disintegrate so what they did is they took detailed pictures of it and actually 3d pictures of it and they were able to put those pictures into a computer and then use the computer to collect the data and process it all and and generate a recording and it turns out the recordings are totally accurate so this is similar except with a fossil so i told you guys your hint was a, a fossil so the sound you just heard is a computer reconstruction of a dinosaur parasaurophilus i hope i said that right i think i did i practiced it for hours so as far as i which know which dinosaur is that sorry which one is that? Oh, great. So that's important. This is the one that has a really distinct look. It has the big 
big structure on its head. And yeah, what can I say about it? It, it? They found this really nice preserved fossil of the head. And of course, they don't want to do a cross section of it and slice it up because they're going to destroy it. Just like the 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 wax cylinders or the or the shattered records they're going to totally destroy it by looking into it so with the technology and CT scanning they were able to really examine the inside of it and what they found is that inside of that horn structure it goes all the way down to the animal's nasal passages and now they think that it, they used it to make sounds so yeah, let me just keep reading from my notes here. This is a result of scientists and paleontologists at the Sandia National Laboratories and the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science. They used computer tomography, which means CT scans, and 3D modeling to rebuild the inner workings of a 4.5-foot Parasaurophilus skull fossil. So the sound comes from the distinctive crest on the dinosaur's head. And from Smithsonian.com, it says, For decades, the crest of the Parasaurophilus puzzled scientists. Such a prominent ornament must have had a function, but what? There were many opinions as to what that might have been by scientists, and depending on who you ask, the crest was used as a weapon, a foliage deflector, right, to move through the foliage, I guess, a cranial air tank, <laughs> or even as a snorkel. So they knew they knew a it connected snorkel. to the nose, but they had, like, no clue what it does. So the CT scans reveal a complex inner working of many long, curved tubes. <laughs> These are part of the animal's skull and attached to its breathing airways. By measuring these tubes the dinosaur and the dinosaur's lung capacity and its hearing equipment, they came up with what we heard. So you can read all about this on www.sandia.gov media slash dinosaur HTM. Sandia is a contractor for the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration, which I thought was really, really interesting that they, they did this. A uh, quote from them says, We work with other government agencies, industry, and academic institutions to accomplish our mission in the following strategic areas. Nuclear weapons, defense system assessments, energy and climate, and global security. So why the dinosaur project? Well, the manager of Sandia's computer architectures department, George Davidson, said the same 3D imaging techniques can be used to analyze and predict the structural integrity of mounting brackets on aging airplanes, the internal structures of aging weapons, and the accurate reconstruction of the forces and mechanical failures associated with the crash of an airplane carrying, say, weapons. Quote, the general capability that this research is developing offers an early look at the new engineering use of computers, which will one day be a broadly applied engineering tool, Davidson says. An added benefit of the project is the widespread visibility it gives to high-performance computing and its growing importance as an engineering tool. Quote, so much of our work at Sandia is classified and therefore we cannot talk about it. This is a project that's appealing and we can talk about it and therefore can serve as a recruiting tool for getting more young people interested in thinking about a career in computing. So that's your what's the sound for this week. So it's like a resonating cavity like our sinuses. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really... It's really big. I mean, it's this, it's bigger than their head. It's, real, it's yeah. not as big as their head. And there's a lot of intricate tubes that kind of weave back and forth. One description described it as working like a trombone. 
So I think, mm-hmm. it, you know, air goes from the nose back into the cavity and then it resonates up through and the whole thing just kind of vibrates. There's a really good description on the Sandia uh, site and it's real short mm. too. Yeah, and this the is the information I shared was from Sandia and from the Smithsonian. So you can get a real, real good understanding of it by uh, reading that, uh, I don't know, page mm. and a half article on Sandia. And these are the, they're bipedal dinosaurs. Just to... I thought so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I can picture what they look like. Yeah. And if you take the DNA from them inside of mosquitoes, you can actually recreate them. Fact. Mm. I knew you were going there. I knew you were going to take it to Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, take it somewhere. Fact. <laughs> oh, I actually, I did look up. Okay, so I knew Casey was doing this particular topic. So I started to look up how they came up with the sounds in Jurassic Park because they're so iconic. You know, I mean, I think anybody who's seen the movie, you then hear that T-Rex scream sound completely out of context and you can probably recognize it as, oh, that's the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. And it turns out a lot of the sounds for that, you know, of course, we had none of this um, science or um, even, you know, educated guesses, really. And so, so many of the sounds were evidently created by taking recordings of small animals and I think I recall it just so happened to be like during mating season, small animals, and then slowing down those sounds because that gives you such a different quality than just a sound from a huge animal. It just resonates differently. So by the time you change the frequency, all of it is really so different from how it started. And I think the T-Rex was like an alligator, turtles, and a pig or something. And they just combined them and manipulate. They combined them, but then also what play with the pitches and slow them down. And yeah. 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 I think nearly every sound was really slowed, really slowed down, which helped with the whole raspiness. Let's do another uh, thought or question for Ayano, and then we can move on to Ben's thing. Yeah. Well, I, I was actually originally going to speak about Minoru Miki today and then I realized I already did that on episode 60, uh, sorry, 76 with Brian Zader. So if you want the sort of biographical information on Miki, go back to episode 76 and check that out. But um, one of the last times I saw Ayano was in 2011, actually. I think it was uh, at the McCormick Marimba Festival at the University of South Florida, where she was the, like, headliner artist. Um, and I remember that was right after Minoru Miki had passed, and Iono said a few kind words about him, and she performed Time for Marimba and dedicated it to him. So I was wondering, did you ever work with Minoru Miki, or did you ever have any personal experiences with him that you could share? Actually, I never met him. Um, I only know of him through, yeah, Time time for Marimba, or, I mean, uh, he's um, more like me known for originally, like, uh, he... He composed lots of like a choral music, and then also he had this um, uh, group to use lots of Japanese tradition uh, traditional instrument, uh, and then he toured a lot. And then yes, um, I believe one of my uh, percussion friend were involved was involved in or some something like that. I I never sort of really didn't sort of 
have the direct connection or something, anything like that. But um, yeah, he was quite a big uh, name um, in Japan. So um, yeah, it's happened that uh, at that um, the uh, Macomic uh, Marimba Festival, um, yeah, I found out that he passed away. So I thought, yeah, it would be nice to play um, signature work. Uh, uh, for Marimba Solo by him. So as a sort of follow-up question to this, when I was researching Mr. Miki, I found that he and Toru Takamitsu are considered, uh, I guess, Japan's sort of two premier 20th century composers. And I feel like a lot of younger players in the U.S. aren't as familiar with many of the Japanese composers or performers and I know as a student, I really only knew Keiko Abe and her sort of composer crew that she was associated with. And then as I became older, I found out about players like Momoko Kamiya and Atsushi Sugahara and pieces by Maki Ishii and the like. And I was wondering, are there any Japanese performers or pieces uh, or composers that you wish that younger players were more aware of in the U.S.? Um, let's see, um, as far as, oh, by the way, uh, I was in Japan last month <laughs> for holidays and, uh, I went to, um, uh, um, Japan Percussion Center, which is a really cool percussion, uh, shop in Asakusa, Tokyo. And anyway, so, um, you know, at the entrance, they have a board and then lots of like flyers of the concert, uh, percussion concert and marimba concert. Uh, and I found out that actually Keiko Abe is turning uh, 80. And then her um, anniversary concert is happening in March. So I thought that was really cool. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, younger composers. Um, let's see. Um, I know recently... Um, this uh, Japanese female uh, composer, uh, her name is um, uh, Miss, Miss uh, Mochizuki. Um, she is became uh, she has become a well-known composer. That he, uh, her work was featured at the Middle Theaters uh, Composers Portrait. Uh, I was not able to go to her. Um, that show, but um, I think she's someone that I'm actually recently interested in um, sort of checking out her work. Um, performers, um, let's see. Um, yeah, like you said, um, Momoko Kamiya has been really um, one of the uh, greatest marimba players uh, in Japan, and she teaches all over the place <laughs> uh, in Japan. And um, uh, my friend, uh, Kunihiko Komori, uh, who studied uh, with uh, Robot One Size, and also William Marsh, uh, before Bob came to Peabody, uh, he has been also sort of, yeah, being um, one of the um, leading marimba player uh, in Japan. Um, and if I go, uh, let's see, younger than that, hmm, um, oh, uh, Eriko Daimo, uh, she is, uh, uh, I believe, husband of the, um, uh, 
shoot. <laughs> um, yeah, what's, what's that guy's name? Anybody? I, I, yeah. <laughs> Who is that? Never heard of him. Pius. Pius Chung. Pius? Yeah. Is that, is it, what, is he like a, a percussionist or something? Uh, Pius is a... Oh, I'm um, sorry, I'm totally joking. I'm totally, we know, we, we're... I was I was trying to I was trying to tool on their rivals. They're like best friends, I don't know. We're like mortal we're like arch enemies. <laughs> Sorry, I, I yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that I yeah, couldn't come up with his name, but anyway. Yeah, um and uh, yeah, uh Eriko. In fact I um ran into her uh that was a couple of months ago when I was uh, in New York. Um uh, yeah, we ran into uh, each other in front of Juilliard uh, music uh, school music, and uh, she was about to uh, teach there for master class or something like that. So that was really nice too. Uh, yeah. I don't know, but uh, another name that I wanted to bring up is: Do you guys know the piece "Memory of the Woods" by Akami Naito? I like that piece a lot. Yeah, it's like it's just a piece that it seems like no one knows it, but it's just the most beautiful Maruma piece I've ever heard. Um, yeah. That's another very very good recent one. Yeah. Um, but continuing in the Japanese vein here, like I said, I was originally going to talk about Minoru Miki, but then I realized I've already done that. And so I started looking about maybe talking about marimba spiritual specifically a little more, but I started looking at the instruments in marimba spiritual and got curious about taiko drumming. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of foundation of modern taiko drumming today. If you're interested in taiko drumming, there is a book by uh, Sean Bender called Taiko Boom, Japanese Drumming in Place and Motion. And it's a very, very thoroughly researched book. He's done quite a few interviews. Um, and it's also very sort of straightforward language. There's you know, He explains all the technical terms, of course, but it's a very easy read. And I read some of that to get some of this information here. But just a little background about taiko drums. Taiko drums are the Japanese traditional drums, if you're not familiar. They were introduced to Japan around the 5th or 6th century, along with some other Chinese and Korean influences that came at that time, including Buddhism. And the oldest constitution of Japan, called Taiho Ritsuyo, uh, which was enacted in seven, the year 702, actually established the Department of Imperial Court Music, and that forms the roots of taiko music that we know today. In 1192, there was an era called the Kamakura era that began in Japan, and that saw the formation of a lot, a lot of original Japanese art forms, including kabuki theater that many people are probably familiar with. And in these theatrical forms, kabuki theater and no theater, there were Japanese instruments that were used as accompaniment, including shamisen, koto, shakuhachi, and taiko. Um, a couple of those are string instruments. Shakuhachi is a Japanese bamboo flute. And then as time went on, much like rudimental drumming in the American Revolution, there's evidence that taiko drumming was used in battlefield communication as early as the 1500s. And there are actually images of men wearing like the drums strapped on a backpack sort of frame, and then there are two soldiers playing the drums on either side in the back. And it's continued to serve a role in Shinto and Buddhist religious ceremonies. So all this, to me, says it's very ancient art form. But I found out that modern taiko drumming like we know today is actually a very new art form, only created in about the 1950s. So the story goes like this. There was a jazz drummer by the name of Daihachi Oguchi, and he was living in 
Okaya city in the Nagano prefecture. And someone, it was a relative of his, found a musical score in a miso cellar and brought it to him and asked him if he could interpret it and, you know, perform it at a local festival they had called the Ofuna Matsuri. And Oguchi didn't know how to read the notation, so he sought out help from a local blacksmith that had performed under whoever wrote this piece out. And when he finally found out what it was, the pattern was very simple to him. And to put it bluntly, it sounds like he was sort of bored with it. So he wanted to figure out how to expand upon it and make it more exciting, being a jazz drummer himself. So he wanted to figure out, like I said, how to expand and sort of improvise on it. And he envisioned an ensemble where the instruments could mimic the sounds of a Western drum set. So there's a small high-pitched drum called a shime daiko that could serve sort of like a snare drum. Then there are medium-sized barrel-shaped drums called chudaiko that could replicate tom-toms. And then there's a very large rope-fastened drum called an Okedo Daiko drum, which could function as the bass drum. And these are all played with sticks called bachi. And then he added furi, which are these sort of dramatic arm movements, and kakego, which is the call and response vocal gestures for dramatic effect. And he also sort of pumped up the speed of this music to make it more exciting. So this was founded in 1951, and this style became known as kumi daiko, which literally means set of drums. And Mr. Oguchi formed the Osuwa Daiko Group, which was named after the nearby Lake Suwa. And at first, this style was actually rejected by a Shinto priest who thought it was sort of sacrilege to take these sacred instruments and uh, make an exciting showcase piece out of it. But this resistance was short-lived because the popularity brought many people into the shrines and, uh, quite frankly, many donations ensued to these shrines. Um, The new television technology at the time helped to promote this art form, and prominent performances that were televised included the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and the 1970 Osaka World's Fair. Some of the groups performing today include this original Osuwa Daiko, which is still performing, Kodo, which is probably the most well-known group. Kodo has recorded several albums, my favorite of which is produced by Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead. It's called Mondo Head, and it includes collaborations with Giovanni Hidalgo, Ayrto, and Zakir Hussein, and sort of a world music mashup uh, with several other collaborators. The most popular group in the U.S. is probably the San Jose Taiko. There's a group called Matsuriza that performs at Epcot's Japan Pavilion. It's been featured in two Cirque du Soleil shows, Messere and Dralion. It was featured at the 2009 Academy Awards and 2011 Grammy Awards. And then two pieces of note in our sort of percussion canon that use taiko drumming or influenced by taiko drumming are Minoru Miki's Marimba Spiritual. And Keiko Abe has a piece, I think one of her lesser known pieces, called Voice of Matsuri Drums, where you play the marimba with slap mallets and it sort of replicates the sound of these festival drums. So, Ayano, have you ever played taiko drums? I'm sure you've experienced them. <laughs> but it's a very cool thing. Yeah, at least um, I'm... Well, I haven't done, uh, actually, the, with the, you know, Japanese style of the... Yeah, you said furi. I think that's about, you know, something like this, <laughs> um, to do this. And... Um, um, yeah, but it's very, very physical and very interesting, and then such a powerful sound that is sort of associated with could be a little bit, um, um, how do I say, like a, I don't know, 
uh, cliche, <laughs> could be cliche, but um, samurai, you know, spirit or something like that. Um, I think it's really, um, yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Have any of you ever seen the group Kodo perform? I have seen, yes, uh, once in Japan, when I was still in Japan, and I was very impressed. Yeah. By, yeah. So if anyone's not familiar with Kodo, they were formed, I think it was, it, they had a different name back then. The group actually split into two different groups, but what we call Kodo, I think it was formed in 1964, I found in my research. Don't quote me on that. Um, but these guys, they literally have an island in Japan that they train on, and they run a, they run a marathon every single morning. And yeah. they once performed at the Boston Marathon. They ran the marathon and then performed. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the most insanely in-shape musicians out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, know, I think kind of said something. It's, it's a very sort of spiritual art form in addition to the, you know, theatrics of it i wonder what they think of the morning run that the health and wellness committee does <laughs> sure it's, it's nothing <laughs> i bet they think it's hardcore it's cold it's cold in Indianapolis it, when it's morning. in india it is cold yeah yeah they got nothing on the health and wellness committee yeah yeah, yeah. We can run circles around them. No, that's neat, Ben. I, I, I knew so little of that. I think taiko drumming is so fun. And, and we have a steel band here, and it's it's great, and it's a popular ensemble, and they do yeah. they, they do wonderful. But I've always imagined, like, okay, if I could if I could pick, you know, the world yeah. percussion well, ensemble to have, you know, steel band, samba band, man, I, I'd want to have a taiko ensemble. I and it, it's funny because there's there's not like not tons and tons of gamelan ensembles in the U.S. at universities, but there I can pick out a few universities that have gamelons. And I, I think maybe Capital University has a taiko group. I'm not sure, but there's not that many taiko groups compared to gamelons, it seems. And it, again, it seems like the same sort of investment where you have to have a room for all the gear and it's very expensive to start up and ship the stuff in from Asia. But yeah, I saw Kodo perform when I was an undergrad student and it was one of the coolest performances I've ever been at. And I remember they didn't just walk on stage. They actually, the, the concert began with them like in the back and they sort of paraded through the audience playing and very festive and throwing the drums up. And cool yeah. stuff. Yeah. Speak, speaking of Minoru Miki, Eric Odaimo, and Taiko drumming at the Fernando Mezas 2010 festival, Erico was going to play Marimba Spiritual. And Fernando had this idea because he had this, this local Taiko group and he was going to have them play with us on marimba spiritual and we kind of as i remember we kind of had to sell erico on the idea because we're going to end up changing around some instruments a little bit and erico's real specific about how she likes her marimba spiritual i mean she's got a really great marimba spiritual i've played it with her a couple of times but that one we had to kind of it was just fernando and i had to kind of like coax her into like no no no, this is a cool idea check it out just let's let's try it let's try the first rehearsal and then of course she loved it and you know she 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 played great yeah she wouldn't let Pius play actually yeah i remember that didn't trust him to play the drum part true story but she let him play it a few years later right no yeah i'm like not not making a joke yeah this is like totally yeah Yeah. it's a true story he has he's, he's played it with her since then yeah and it's of course yeah. fine yeah thanks ben that was that was wonderful ayana what's the um uh let me think uh i'll edit this out um oh you have a great recording of rebonds 
on YouTube and a Vic, Vic Firth video, right? From memory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. It's really, really great performance. Can you, can you talk just a little about so many people play rebounds and I used to, I used to tour around with it a lot and I've stopped, but I, I want to, I really want to pick it back up again. Can you, can you talk about what you think makes a really good performance of rebounds? Well, I have done um, rebounds quite a, uh, like a long time I have been playing it. And then actually um, the first time was when I was student in Japan and I had no idea about the piece. And then I just thought, I just want to do this piece it's because it's cool. <laughs> so that was the only, you know, only sort of reason for me to do. And um, yeah, the, uh, thinking back, uh, that performance, I really, yeah, didn't do like the way it should be. <laughs> so anyway, I um the way I um I I play uh, the piece from memory, and then the way I memorized uh, the piece was actually um like taking um syllable on each drum, uh, like like tabla player. Um, you know, uh, mem memorize the passage by sort of like da din din da da di din da or something like that. So I got some the idea from that. So I put the each drum, the you know, and then put the syllable on each drum, and then I kind of really speak speaks to be able to make a phrase of the drum sound. It's helped helped me a lot to go through this process. Um, so, yeah. I just wanted to I say wanted to I was at the PASIC, what was it, 2011 that you did it, I think, at PASIC? Somewhere around there. Yeah, somewhere around. <laughs> but it was uh, in, I just remember, I think it was in Raybon's A, like, not that far into the piece, somewhere on the first page or so, one of the sticks went flying and Casey has talked about before, like performances where something goes wrong, it's almost more impressive to watch the recovery because if I was playing that thing from memory and a stick went flying, I'd be hung out to dry. And Ayana was bulletproof. I mean, kept going with one hand, grabbed another stick off her Raybon's B stand and just kept going. It was cool. amazing. Yeah, actually, I didn't remember. I don't I didn't remember that. <laughs> How I recovered. Uh, you have a good memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I, I also experienced a lot uh, with that piece, actually, the accident like that. Like, for example, um, you know, that's a typical piece for you. So um, I, when I try to do the piece uh, to the competition and then, you know, typically the condition for competition is you just go there and then you kind of have to manage with the uh, equipment equipment that they provide. So um, when I had, I, um, I had one competition in Japan and then I didn't have, I, I should have brought some kind of like instruments that I was practicing on, but I didn't think of that. Um, so then I had to choose uh, from uh, what they had and then, um, Actually, I couldn't have the uh, setup like on at the same height. Uh, the bass drum didn't have the you know ring, um, 
the stand that you know can uh, adjust your angle. But um, yeah, I, yeah, they didn't have that, so I had to really manage with the regular X um, stand so that base and then bass drum was really really small, and then. Um, other drums are just like bongo was too high or tom toms were too low or something like that and then i had to play with that and then um at that time i um yeah also tried to do from memory but then i got so freaked out with the situation so i the, i got totally memory slipped and i really couldn't play uh the rebound like faked <laughs> and uh yeah i i had such a bad um, memory of the performance. So um, I think the each of the um, the experience made me sort of really learn how to deal with the accident like that, and also like how to memorize as well. Um, because like if you memorize, I used to memorize by just like a sound or the pitch or whatever. And then I realized that when I went to a competition and you don't get the same pitch of the drum either. So that also screws your memory. And uh -huh. they get to, yeah, uh, go to memory slip. So um, it's helped me to use the syllable so that I, even I have a hearing different pitch of the drum, but if I stick with the syllable to speak, keep speaking um, uh, in my mind, um, or I, I often just yeah, speak and play at the same time, but that really helps keep me concentrated. And then uh, again, sort of using that syllable um, helps me. Um, like like um, I often also say about uh, example, like when you see uh, the movie in different language, uh, you don't understand what exactly the actor is saying sure. but but you can still get the idea the feeling like what uh, the person is feeling by like nuance or the the way of the speaking or the you know strength of the voice or you know that kind of you know um um passion or you know the feeling uh, can still sort of um translate to the way that um person is speaking so i kind of want have this idea when i play drum as well i think even the the language of drum it's in a way yeah like hard to understand but at the same time still i can really transmit <laughs> um some somehow through yeah, uh, something like that. So the nuance or the texture or, uh, yeah, um, way of speaking. So, yeah, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I, I had thought about the, the tabla thing before. I never did it, but that's very cool that you did it that way. <laughs> um, well, to change gears a little bit, we're about to wrap up soon here, but I wanted to ask you about something I saw on your bio I don't think too many percussionists can say they performed with someone along the likes of Yo-Yo Ma or Emmanuel Axe. Could you tell us about performing with those two just giants of classical music? Um, yeah, I met Yo-Yo Ma when I attended um, the 
Sydney who has a professional development workshop series, and then Yoyoma and uh, our guest for that. And then um, I applied attend for the workshop, and then yeah, I was selected for that. So I had a ten days of working uh, with them in Tanglewood, and then had a, a four shows in. Car- in New York at the Carnegie uh, at the end of the, this workshop. So that was uh, when I got to, yeah, uh, connect to him. And then later on, um, someone recommended me to play, um, uh, con- uh, no, not concerto. It, it was a, a piece for cello and two percussion. And then that was a... Um, world premiere performance that uh, someone was looking for. And then um, I guess uh, he knew that I worked um, with Yoyoma in the past. Uh, so that was that. And then um, um, with the Emmanuel Axe, uh, that was uh, actually um, uh, when I was uh, accepted into the uh, residency program called uh, Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, Chamber Music Society, uh, Chim, uh, Chamber Music Society Two. Um, so that is uh, that is a three-year residency program, and um, um, yeah, I was uh, actually the first percussionist to be uh, selected, and then um, the. Um, I think I found out about that sometime in June, and then um, their opening concert was um, in September, and then they already had this uh, program to play uh, Bartok, uh, Sonata for two piano and two percussion. And uh, I heard one of the percussionists uh, had a conflict or some kind of like cancellation uh, that happened. so. Um, yeah, they uh, contacted me if I could do it. So that was even before the residency program start. So yeah, that was a sort of surprise <laughs> for me to be asked. But but since they knew uh, I was going to be on the roster, so that was really fortunate. <laughs> uh, and I did that uh, with uh, Don Liuzzi. Uh, yeah. And uh, also, that was the first time that, like, I only had a, you know, um, two rehearsals. Well, that was the first time for me to play it, uh, the piece. And then, actually, uh, the way they contacted me was by email. And then, sort of like, are you interested in playing with many acts? <laughs> so that was the the email that is saying at at first and then um this is kind of embarrassing for me to say but i didn't know money was a you know nickname of the emmanuel so who is money (laughs) (laughs) i had no idea and then uh at that time i was still at yale um and then eric beach from soul percussion uh he was somewhat yeah around um, me and then sort of I asked uh, about this email. Who is this uh, money axe? And then he was like, "Wow, I know it's the manual axe. <laughs> that's really cool." <laughs> so that's the way I found out about um, playing with him. And then also again, um, yeah, had two rehearsals. I think 
like maybe two and a half hours rehearsal for the day one, and then an hour and a half for the next day. And then、um, we had performance at Yale because、um, Emmanuel Axe had a、um, uh, Horowitz series.、Um, The concerts that、uh, he was、uh, already booked. So、uh, he wanted to try out the Bartok、uh, for that. So I、uh, went to、um, uh, Yale to do it after we finished the rehearsal in New York. Then、uh, Don was trying to bring his own timpani, but then he got、uh, stuck in traffic. So he really came almost. Uh, like, we had a dress rehearsal, but、um, we couldn't do the dress rehearsal because he was late. So, probably we had only like 30 minutes to like, just sound check or something like that. Then we had to go for the first performance. So, that was. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, the piece is too hard. Like, you're, you're the rookie in the group having to deal with all this. <laughs> yeah. But it, I had lucky, you know, two performances that I, mean, I, I think it went pretty well, the Yale performance. And then, yeah, we had a、uh, Lincoln Center performance on the next day. And uh, uh, the second pianist was his wife,、uh, Yoko Nozaki,、um, yeah, who is Japanese. <laughs> so that was really nice to do as well. Well, you guys, thanks so much for joining us on episode 128. And, and Iono Kataoka, thanks so much for having, having this hour with us. And、uh, glad you're safe and sound with all the snow in Amherst there. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thanks everyone. We'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.